Now, I always thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible, and we do that again today, of course. And occasionally, they do send a staff member down here to do an introduction for us. And we're fortunate to today have Nicole McMullen, the digital director of the Richmond Times-Dispatch, and she will actually introduce today's speaker. Nicole? Great. Thank you, Paul. I am delighted to be here today on behalf of the Richmond Times-Dispatch to introduce the program. As the oldest and favorite daughter of Thomas Jefferson, Martha Patsy Jefferson Randolph was extremely well-educated, traveled in the circles of presidents and aristocrats, and was known on two continents for her particular grace and sincerity. Yet as mistress of a large household, she was not spared the tedium, frustration, and great sorrow that most women of her time experienced. Though Patsy's name is familiar because of her famous father, today's speaker is the first historian to place her at the center of her own story, taking readers into the largely ignored private spaces of the founding era. Cynthia A. Kerner is professor of history and director of the PhD program in history and art history at George Mason University. And she received her PhD from the University of Virginia. A specialist in the fields of early America, women and gender, and early Southern history, Cindy is the author or editor of several books and articles, including Scandal at Bazaar, Rumor and Reputation in Jefferson's America, and Martha Jefferson Randolph, Daughter of Monticello, Her Life and Times. She is an OAH Distinguished Lecturer and past president of the Southern Association for Women Historians. And she has served on several editorial boards, including a term with Virginia Magazine of History and Biography. Please joining, join me in welcoming Cindy Kerner, who will speak to us today about Martha Jefferson Randolph, daughter of Monticello. Can you hear me? I'm really loud, it's not usually a problem. Um, thanks for that great introduction. Um, over the years, my research has benefited enormously from the tremendous collections here at the Historical Society and, and most especially from the expertise um, of the staff here. And, and this book is no exception. So I'm especially pleased to be here today um, to talk about it with you. Um, there were supposed to be pictures. I don't want you to think I'm a Luddite and I don't do PowerPoint, but for some reason that's kind of not working. So um, since I don't want to draw pictures or act out what the pictures would be, um, the talk might take a little bit longer than intended because you know one picture is worth a thousand words, so you're going to get the thousand words instead for each of, each of the slides. But I talk fast, so you'll, you'll still be out of here into the, the rain before you know it. Um, I should begin by saying um, that I arrived at my topic in a kind of unusual way. Um, I'm not a Jefferson scholar, so I didn't decide to work on Martha to gain new insight into Jefferson or his life. Nor did I approach Martha as one of the so-called founding mothers. Um, her age disqualified her from being a member of that group. She was born in 1772, so she experienced the revolutionary era um, more as a child than as a full-fledged participant. 
Instead, I approached Martha Jefferson Randolph as a historian of women as a, and as a historian of Southern women in particular. Um, as Nicole said, um, I had writ written a book about a scandal, the bizarre scandal that occurred um, in the Randolph family during the 1790s. And the short version of that story runs something like this. And my first image was going to be a family tree, which should really help because um, there are like a gazillion Randolphs, right? You're just going to have to trust me that they're all related to each other. Um, Richard Randolph of Cumberland County, his plantation was named Bazaar, which is great, um, was accused of impregnating his sister-in-law, Nancy, and then either helping her to induce an abortion, hide a stillborn infant, or kill a live one. Richard was married to Judith Randolph, and both Judith and Nancy's were, were the sisters of Thomas Mann Randolph, who had married Thomas Jefferson's oldest daughter, Martha. So they were the in-laws, in other words, of Martha. And as the scandal ran its course, the sensationally dysfunctional Randolphs, or really, really dysfunctional, feuded with each other, plotted with each other, challenged each other to duels, did all the things that kind of bad families did in 18th century Virginia. And, and Martha Jefferson Randolph seemed to me to be one of the few people involved in this whole mess who wasn't like crazy in a bad way. Um, and she even remained on good terms with both the sisters, Judith and Nancy. Um, despite the fact that she had to be a witness in court at Richard Randolph's arraignment in April of 1793, which must have been just horrifying and embarrassing and all sorts of things. So Marcia, Mar Martha's um, kind of sane, dignified, rational, and above all humane response um, to what should have been a damning scandal really intrigued me. Um, and the existence of a vast archive of Randolph and Jefferson family papers made it possible for me to tell her personal story in a way that we can rarely do for early American women, and, and that's especially true if we're talking about women in the rural South. So I set out to write a biography of Thomas Jefferson's older daughter, but not necessarily a book that had Jefferson at its center. Um, most traditional Jefferson biographers, quite logically, I think, present Martha um, as a member of their supporting cast in the stories that they tell about Jefferson. And if they consider the question at all, they assume that Martha benefited enormously from her close connection to her famous father. More recently, some historians have emphasized Jefferson's issues with women. Um, and the negative consequences of his influence um, in his two daughters' lives. For instance, um, his hostility towards women's involvement in politics and, and pretty much any sort of an extra domestic activity. Um, both approaches, it seems to me, have some merit, um, but neither can really tell Martha's entire story, which I argue was shaped at least as much by her situation as a wife, a mother, and a plantation mistress as it was by her status as the daughter of Thomas Jefferson. So I'd like to begin today by reading the first paragraph in my book's introduction, um, which describes the arrival of the Marquis de Lafayette at Monticello in 1824. This visit, pretty famous visit actually, was um, the, an early stop on the Frenchman's two-year grand tour of the United States to celebrate the, the, the 50th anniversary of American independence. And at the time, Lafayette was 67 years old. 
Thomas Jefferson, his old friend and fellow revolutionary, was 81. Um, Martha was the other pivotal figure in this scene. She was 52 years old in 1824. And now I'm going to ask you to imagine two portraits of old men and one of a middle-aged woman, which would have been um, Jefferson and, and Lafayette and, and Martha Randolph. Um, so here goes. One sunny November afternoon in 1824, Martha Jefferson Randolph stood beside her father, Thomas Jefferson, and welcomed the Marquis de Lafayette to Monticello. The aging French hero who was touring the United States to commemorate the 50th anniversary of American independence kissed her hands and offered kind words, while his hostess, according to one report, received him with a grace peculiarly her own. Widely regarded as an exemplary woman and an accomplished plantation mistress, Martha Randolph presided over a celebration that showcased the Virginia gentry's gracious style of living and traditional rites of Southern hospitality. After receiving Lafayette on Monticello's column portico, 20 ladies and gentlemen, including several of Martha's own white-robed daughters and nieces, enjoyed a pleasant dinner indoors. By all accounts, the food was good and the company was congenial. As the sun set behind the distant Blue Ridge Mountains, Martha Jefferson Randolph and her guest basked in the nostalgic glow of the reunion of the old revolutionaries. I chose this scene to begin my biography of Martha Randolph because for me at least, it captures certain defining aspects of her life. Um, on the one hand, her life by virtue of her relationship to Jefferson was by any measure both privileged and extraordinary. Um, Martha actually knew Lafayette. So here's a Virginia woman who knows a French aristocrat. Um, after her mother had died in 1782, Martha spent five years in Paris, France, where her father was a diplomat and where she attended a prestigious convent school and received an unusually thorough education. Um, in 1824, she probably greeted her famous guest in French because at a time when many Virginians were illiterate, Patsy Jefferson had learned to read and speak four languages. And at a time when many Virginians rarely traveled beyond their own counties, she had spent time in Europe and also in leading American cities like Boston and Philadelphia. Education, travel, and a cosmopolitan outlook, these were all generally signs of privilege in America at this time, and that's especially true if you're talking about women. Martha also continued to enjoy the society of interesting and well-known people even after she returned to the United States and settled in Albemarle County in central Virginia. On the day that Lafayette visited, the former president, James Madison, was among the other guests. Martha counted both him and his wife, Dolly, among her close friends. Other dinner guests came from the state capitol in Richmond, and Lafayette's travel companions included a woman named Frances Wright, who was a Scottish writer who admired Jefferson and who so soon became famous, some would say infamous, for going around the country giving public speeches against slavery and in favor of women's rights. So these were the people that Martha was schmoozing with when Lafayette came to visit. At Monticello then, Martha Jefferson Randolph inhabited a cosmopolitan world of well-informed conversation, good food, and what we would kind of consider upscale social life. 
People who flocked there to visit Jefferson generally said good things about her performance as hostess, presided over, presiding over what amounted to a cultural mecca in the heart of rural Virginia. Years earlier, when she sometimes acted as her father's hostess in Washington when he was president, the Spanish ambassador said that Martha's social skills were, and these are his words, fit for any court in Europe. Others agreed that she was intelligent, kind, cultured, and at ease in most social situations. From that perspective, at least, she led a charmed, a privileged life. Yet there were other aspects of Martha's life that were really quite ordinary, I mean, surprisingly ordinary, and, and even difficult. And a discerning guest would have found clues about these less privileged aspects of her situation, also in evidence on that November day when Lafayette came to visit Monticello. First and foremost, Martha Randolph's life centered on her family. And like most Southern women of her era, she had a really big one. Um, she was pregnant roughly every two years after she married and therefore bore many children. Um, though she was more fortunate than most mothers because pregnancy and childbirth were relatively easy for her and all but two of her 13 pregnancies resulted in the birth of a living infant who survived to adulthood. Um, she had one miscarriage out of 13 pregnancies and one of her children died um, when she was a year old. Um, but the others all lived um, to, on to adults, and there would have been a list there with their names and their dates um, if, if, if that had worked. But you don't need to know that. Um, there were lots of them, and let's just leave it at that. Um, in 1824, um, Martha's, Martha's five still unmarried daughters were among those white-robed maidens who greeted Lafayette. Her oldest son, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, had escorted their honored guests um, up the mountain to Monticello in his grandfather's carriage that day. Equally significant, though, was the absence of one member of Martha's immediate family on that occasion, and that was her husband, Thomas Mann Randolph, who was, among other things, a former member of Congress and a recent governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. But Tom was also broke. He was penniless and increasingly estranged from his wife and children. And from Jefferson, too, despite the fact that the two men had a lot in common besides their connection to Martha. Both men had accumulated debts that equaled or exceeded the total value of their property. In 1824, Martha's father and husband still had their land, but within a few years, both Randolph's and Jefferson's estates would be liquidated to help satisfy their creditors. Anyone who visited Monticello in 1824 would have noticed things like threadbare furniture, um, most of which Jefferson had bought in France like 40 years earlier. Um, maybe they also would have noticed some other tangible evidence that their host, like many other Virginia planters at this time, especially after the Panic of 1819, um, was on the brink of financial ruin. They also should have noticed um, that women's work, and specifically the work of Martha and her daughters and their enslaved domestic servants, provided many of the amenities that they enjoyed during their visit to Monticello, just as they would have in most other plantation households. Women oversaw dairies and hen houses that put butter and cheese and eggs on the dinner table. 
They also tended gardens that yielded vegetables and herbs, as well as flowers and other foliage that decorated their households and probably made them smell a lot better, too, um, on festive occasions. Um, and the Randolph women, Mar Martha and her daughters, they were all avid gardeners. As mistress of Monticello, Martha also would have planned the dinner menu for Lafayette's visit, perhaps choosing recipes from one of her French cookbooks. Um, she got one French cookbook as a newlywed gift from her father. Um, she got another one in 1819, um, which kind of went down through the family and ended up in the Boston Public Library. Um, and I had a slide of that because the really cool thing about that newer, newer 1819 cookbook is that she must have gotten that book to t in order to teach her daughters how to cook. Um, because if you open the book um, and, and you look at the title page and the blank page that precedes it, it's covered with her handwriting. And what she wrote um, in, in the flyleaf of that book and on the title page was essentially a cooking glossary that went from A to Z. I think the first entry was aspic and the last one was zest. Um, and if you read the terminology carefully, what you see, you know, for those of you who are foodies or food historians or food historian wannabes, what you see is a really interesting collection of terms that on the one hand draws from French cuisine and French cooking terms and French ingredients, and the other draws on what we would today call Southern cuisine or Southern cooking or Virginia ingredients. Although I have to say, um, she defined grits as coming from wheat. And I mean, even I know that's not right. And I'm from New Jersey, so I don't know, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know what's up with that. I'm like, wow, you know, so, so maybe she didn't teach her daughters everything right, and maybe she was more into the French side of things. Um, but the fact of the matter is that even, you know, women who had um, domestic servants who did the actual cooking for them had to be knowledgeable about cooking, had to be knowledgeable about food preparation, um, and, and more than likely would have planned the menus, particularly um, on days when important people um, came to visit. Um, but the handwritten notes in the book shows you that, you know, even at, um, you know, in middle age, I mean, she was clearly very hands-on in teaching her daughters um, some of these things. And men like Jefferson um, knew that women and women's work um, brought not only comfort, but also real economic benefits to their households. Um, Jefferson believed that, and this is a quote, a wife imbued with principles of prudence may go far toward arresting or lessening the evils of an improvident management, which led so many of what he called unthrifty, which is being really generous, Virginia planters to financial ruin. So I mean, not only, you know, um, is Jefferson and, and a lot of other, you know, male writers at the time saying that, you know, women's domestic work is important. They're even admitting um, that it had, it, it brought real economic value to the, to the family, that, that by producing things in gardens and by economizing in a household that that could sort of offset for, for perhaps um, a year of bad crops or perhaps um, a man whose, um, you know, business skills were not as up to snuff as perhaps they, they should have been. And, as you probably know, Jefferson knew whereof he spoke, um, to put it kindly. Um, I think that the fact that Martha was such an able manager um, and that her father and husband were not um, was one of the great ironies of her life. Um, it was ironic because 
whatever informal influence Martha had over family finances, and I think her influence was considerable, um, and whatever informal or influence she had over other sort of household issues, both law and custom deprived her of any real authority. Um, in Virginia and in every other state in the United States at this time, as in Great Britain, when a woman married, she lost her legal identity and her husband became the sole representative of the family at law. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, in practical terms, it meant that she couldn't file lawsuits, she couldn't execute contracts, she couldn't control property, which would have included any wages that she had earned herself. Um, this is the English common law doctrine of coverture. Um, the first state to give married women's property rights um, was New York in 1848. But in Virginia, coverture remains in force until after the Civil War. Also, um, in the eyes of the law, children were considered marital property and all marital property, including the children, pretty much automatically went to the husband in the rare case of divorce or separation. So what that meant was that many women were kept in bad marriages, even if other options were legally or theoretically available to them because they feared losing their children. All right, so Patsy Jefferson was not yet 18 years old when she married Tom Randolph after a two-month whirlwind courtship in 1790. Um, the one slide that I was going to show you here, it actually, and I have to talk about it because it's from the collections of the Virginia Historical Society, and I paid a lot to put it in my book. Um, they, the Virginia Historical <laughs> it's a good cause. Um, the Virginia Historical Society owns the only image of Thomas Mann Randolph, the guy who married Martha Jefferson. Um, and what's really interesting about the image is that it's a kind of crude portrait. Um, and the artist clearly could not do hands, right? Um, and, but instead of saying, Tom, sit on your hands because I can't draw hands, he tried anyway. Um, and it kind of looks like Thomas Mann Randolph had deformed hands. Um, so if you see that portrait, you'd be like, oh, she married a man with a deformed hand. No, she didn't. There's no evidence in, in, in any of the sources that he had a deformed hand. Um, but anyway, I mean, the Virginia Historical Society does own that one image. And, and you can actually call it up on the internet if you're interested. The little hand's kind of creepy. Um, but anyway, um, we think he was OK. Um, but with the benefit of hindsight, one can, and I think one should, wonder why Thomas Jefferson let his daughter take such a serious step as marriage so quickly. A two-month courtship, she's not even 18 years old, which, by the way, was young even for the time for a woman to marry. Um, and I think probably one of the answers is that Thomas Jefferson just really liked his son-in-law, and obviously Martha liked him too. Um, Tom Randolph shared Jefferson's interest in science, in experimental farming, in revolutionary politics. Um, he was also the oldest son of Jefferson's boyhood friend, Thomas Mann Randolph of Tuckahoe. He expected to inherit a large estate from his father. That didn't work out, but they didn't know that at the time. Um, earlier, Jefferson had written in a pretty famous letter that he really, really worried that his daughters would marry blockheads, his word. Well, well Thomas Mann Randolph was no blockhead. Um, he was no blockhead. Um, so in 1790, everyone seemed hopeful about the young couple's future, and seemingly, you know, they, they were hopeful for good reason. So in 1790, Patsy Jefferson became a wife. Um, in 1791, she became a mother, and 
She also became a plantation mistress, eventually settling with Tom at Edge Hill, which was a Randolph family property in Albemarle County, not far from Monticello. Tom Randolph watched over his father-in-law's property when he was away from home as Secretary of State, as Vice President, and then finally, of course, as President of the United States. And when Tom was elected to Congress in 1803, it was Martha, who was by then the mother of five small children, who oversaw the plantations at both Edge Hill and Monticello. Martha Jefferson Randolph's eight years as the president's daughter um, were arguably the most exciting and the most stressful of her life. Um, if any of you knew anything about Martha before you came here today or before you visited Monticello, um, you would probably have thought of her as Jefferson's hostess when he was president because, of course, he was a widower. If you go to the White House website today where they have all the first ladies, she's listed as first lady for Jefferson's presidency. Um, but, you know, it's worth emphasizing that um, the years of her father's presidency accounted for only one-eighth of her total lifetime. And that during those eight years, she went to Washington only twice. And one time she didn't stay that long. It's also, I think, really important to remember that Jefferson's rise to the presidency did not necessarily confer special status on Martha or on her younger sister, because most Americans at this time rejected the idea of an unelected first family, which sounded just a little too much like a royal family. And remember, Americans, of course, had rejected royalty back in 1776. Um, so it was by no means clear that Jefferson's being president would make Martha somehow special or would make her move to Washington to be with her father, although, although he really wanted her to. So wife, mother, and plantation mistress Martha, in fact, spent most of her father's presidency at home in Virginia. She raised her children, she familiarized herself with her family's finances, and she began to worry big time about money. Um, she especially began to worry about money as various members of her husband's extended family found themselves falling deeper and deeper into debt and asking the comparatively solvent Tom Randolph to help them out. Um, she writes this one letter to Jefferson where she says, the ruin of our family extends itself daily and starts listing the number of the relatives who are bankrupt or near bankrupt. Um, it's pretty depressing reading. Um, Martha also began to worry about her father's finances. His expenses in Washington mounted, um, particularly because of his famous dinner parties. Okay? Jefferson is famous for dinner parties. He's famous for good food, good wine. Um, we now know that Jefferson having all these dinner parties, was, it was social, but it was also one of the ways that he did politics. But it was also very expensive. Um, and, 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 you know, and so Martha worried about that as well. Um, Martha also worried that her visits to Washington were expensive, even though they weren't frequent. Um, when she went to the Capitol, Dolly Madison was like her personal shopper, right? Dolly would like shop beforehand to prepare for Martha's arrival, ordering stylish clothes and hair ornaments from Philadelphia milliners so that Martha would fit into Washington society. You wore different stuff in the city, in the capital, than you would at home on the farm in Albemarle County. Um, in fact, when, when she came 
home from Washington the first time. She was wearing all her, you know, good Washington clothes, and she said that her youngest child didn't recognize her. It's like, who's that woman? You know, it's like, if I ever wear makeup, my kids are like, what's that on your face? I mean, it's, you know, kind of like, kind of like the, the same thing. Um, the capital was admittedly more a swamp than a city during Jefferson's presidency, but still, it was a gathering place for refined and fashionable people, including European diplomats and some of the most educated and civic-minded women in the early American Republic. So in Washington, Martha became close friends with Dolly Madison, who was already an important Washington hostess and a political force even before her husband succeeded Jefferson as president in 1809. Um, Martha also acquired a lifelong friend in Margaret Baird Smith. Margaret Baird Smith is someone who you may not have heard of, but she's a fascinating character. She was the wife of a Washington newspaper editor, a pro-Jefferson newspaper editor, but she was also an influential writer and a civic leader in her own right. Um, she wrote essays, she wrote novels, um, and, and she became a very good friend um, to Martha. Martha's presence in Washington when she was there um, had a political purpose, too, um, even though no one said so explicitly um, at the time. Um, it's really interesting, if you read Jefferson's letters from the first you know, year, two years, whatever, when he became president, he's always asking his daughters to visit. He's always asking them to come live with him. Um, you know, I miss you, you know, I want my family here, blah, blah, blah. And you know, they always very politely say, well, you know, stuff going on here too, Dad, really can't come. Well, they finally do come, the two of them, um, come to Washington for the first time um, late in 1802. So that's almost two years into his first term as president. Um, the timing is interesting. Um, it was also not long after Jefferson's political enemies published the famous story about his relationship with Sally Hemings in a Richmond newspaper. Um, is the timing coincidental? I don't think so. Um, by having his devoted daughters at his side at official dinners and at public worship, Jefferson was able to project a public image that was totally at odds um, with the nasty rumors about him and his slave mistress. Martha's second visit in 1805, after the death of her younger sister, Mary Jefferson Epps, served a similar purpose. By making a positive impression on visitors, she made him look good. Um, even Jefferson's political enemies, it seems, had good things to say about Martha. John Randolph of Roanoke, who just had nasty things to say about everyone, pretty much, um, called Martha Randolph the sweetest woman in Virginia. I mean, clearly, she was special um, in terms of social skills. Um, Martha herself had mixed feelings about the time she spent in Washington. On the one hand, she cherished her friends there, um, but she really hated the bitter partisanship which often sank to a very personal level. Um, Jefferson's political enemies portrayed him as an infidel. Um, they portrayed him as someone who violated the Constitution, as someone who subverted American interests to support the French revolutionaries and then later Napoleon. Um, so they were like the kind of political things that they got on him for. Um, they also obviously, um, you know, portrayed him as a scoundrel who kept an enslaved mistress at Monticello. Um, 
I have some particularly fun political cartoons, but alas, you'll have to imagine. Um, one, is, one is really a political cartoon that shows a kind of deranged-looking Jefferson sacrificing American liberty on the altar of Gallic despotism. Dun, dun, dun. You know, I mean, it's supposed to be this kind of sinister, you know, Jefferson anti-American, sucking up to the French and all of that, and therefore he's, he's bad. Um, the other one um, that I would have shown you, um, it, it, it's actually a color print. I mean, I don't know if people hung these things in their living room or what, but one portrayed Jefferson um, as a kind of a rooster or a cock, which was the symbol of the French revolutionaries, and Sally Hemings was portrayed as a hen. So, I mean, not only are there nasty, you know, articles, circulating in newspapers um, attacking Jefferson for his um, you know, alleged political and personal flaws. Um, but there are also these visual images as well. Um, and they hurt Martha. They hurt her hard, um, which she called the cruel slanders about her father's personal life and character um, hurt her deeply, so much so that she sometimes felt that she was, and these are her words, in the very focus of political violence during her father's presidency. And in fact, Martha Jefferson Randolph spent much of her adult life protecting and promoting her father's public image. Um, and that's something I don't think that people really recognize, because she did it very well. I mean, she wasn't out there being very public about it. Um, she did this both because she loved him and because she came to believe, um, with some justification as it turns out, that his fame would be her and her children's most valuable inheritance. As the mistress of Monticello after Jefferson retired in 1809, she and her family provided the context in which he received a near constant stream of guests. In their company at Monticello, Jefferson presented himself on the one hand as a regular family man, a man of the people, surrounded by his family, and on the other hand, as a kind of philosopher king who retired to his library every day while his daughters and granddaughters tended to their guests' needs and shielded him from unwanted interruptions. Later, after Jefferson died, Martha and her children also promoted his legacy by publishing a carefully edited, carefully selected um, collection of his writings. But she was also able to use her cachet as being Jefferson's sole surviving child to get a certain amount of influence herself when she returned to Washington after he died in the 1820s. So she's protecting his image, but on the other hand, that image is indeed going to be um, of some value to her. Um, so when Thomas Jefferson died famously on the 4th of July, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, his daughter's life entered a new phase. By then, Martha's husband, Thomas Mann Randolph, had lost his property. The fact that Jefferson died so deeply in debt meant that the family would also have to sell Monticello, though it took a few years for that to actually happen. But for all practical purposes then, Martha Randolph was, or at least soon would be, officially homeless. Thomas Mann Randolph died in 1828 with his family at his bedside. But the fact that his death made Martha officially a widow made little practical difference. After all, there was no property left to divide up after he died. And she, in fact, had been living apart from her husband for several years at that point. Between Jefferson's death in 1826 and her own death a decade later, 
Martha divided her time between Edge Hill, which was the plantation that her oldest son, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, had purchased from his father's ruined estate. So she was at Edge Hill, and the other places that she was at were the homes of her married daughters who settled in Boston and Washington, D.C. During these years, her very limited income came entirely from slavery, specifically from hiring out or selling the enslaved people, most of whom were women and children, that she had managed to acquire from her father's estate. Um, Martha is interesting because like her father, she is part of that kind of broad revolutionary generation of Virginians who really did believe that slavery was bad, but actually didn't do a whole lot about it. But that's still, that's kind of different from what comes later where people are actually saying that it's good. Um, Martha often said that slavery was evil. Um, she often said that her family and in fact the entire country in general would be better off without it. And she also said often that masters and mistresses should be kind to their slaves. But when she was forced to choose, she always put the needs and interests of her children ahead of those of her enslaved workforce, as indeed did Jefferson himself. Um, what that meant was that Martha sometimes sold, rented, um, or otherwise moved slaves away from their families, despite the fact that one of the things that she also often said was that it was utterly unjustifiable to break up the families of enslaved people. So you can see this kind of tension, conflict. Martha hired out slaves to help pay for the house that she shared with her daughter, Virginia, and her son-in-law, Nicholas Trist, in Washington, D.C., um, where Trist got a series of jobs, in part because people in government had heard about Martha's bad situation and wanted to help out. Um, Trist received his first government job from Secretary of State Henry Clay, who offered him a job because Martha's old friend, Margaret Bayard Smith, had told him that employing Trist would help his mother-in-law. And in fact, there's this great letter, short letter, in the Henry Clay papers where, you know, Nicholas Trist must have been really thrilled getting his first job. The letter says, you know, dear Trist, congratulations, I'm hiring you because I want to help your mother-in-law. Must have made the young guy feel great. But anyway, you know, you know but anyway, he, 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 he got a job. Um, although Clay himself lost his job after Andrew Jackson became president in 1829, the incoming Democrats, in other words, the Jacksonians, were also friendly to Martha in part because they could point to their friendship with her as evidence that Jackson and his supporters were the true heirs to Jefferson's political legacy. So they kind of, you know, her, her presence kind of made them seem more legitimate. Andrew Jackson, you might remember, had an inauguration party where drunken people were falling out of the windows of the White House. So it was really good to have Martha Randolph there kind of making them look more well-behaved and stuff. Martha liked both Jackson and Martin Van Buren, his Secretary of State and close advisor. The three cemented a political alliance of sorts over the so-called Eaton Affair, which occurred when Jackson's cabinet and Washington society in general defied the president by refusing to attend dinners where the wife of Jackson's Secretary of War was present. The supposedly scandalous woman at the center of this controversy was Margaret O'Neill Timberlake Eaton, the daughter of a tavern keeper and an alleged adulteress. In 1829, Martha agreed to be the guest of honor at a dinner Van Buren hosted that Margaret Eaton attended. 
and all the cabinet members came because meeting the daughter of Thomas Jefferson was such a big attraction. Um, and, you know, if you look at the cover of my book, you'll see the most famous portrait of Martha. Um, as an older woman, she really did look a lot like Jefferson. She looked like a female version of him. So there was that element of it as well, that she was his daughter, you know, in so many ways. She physically resembled him. Um, you know, she could talk about, you know, the old days and things her father did, so forth and so on. Jackson and Van Buren regarded this dinner as a huge tactical victory. And in part for that reason, they treated Martha and her family very kindly. Nicholas Trist received some big promotions. He became Jackson's private secretary and then later consul to Havana in Cuba. Um, the youngest Randolph son, George, received a commission in the US Navy, even though he was like 13 years old. Um, and another brother married Jackson's niece and became secretary to the governor of the Arkansas Territory. But these achievements were at best bittersweet for Martha, who took it really hard as her children scattered, left Virginia in search of better opportunities. Years earlier, she and her father had envisioned the Randolph children settling together on family land near Monticello and Poplar Forest, which was Jefferson's um, other plantation in Bedford County in the western part of the state. Now that land was gone, sold to pay debts. And Martha bitterly regretted the fact that economics forced her own children, like so many other young Virginians, to leave their native state to fend for themselves. And in fact, her daughters believed that stress due to the gradual breakup of the family led to Martha's unexpected death at Edge Hill in October 1836. She was only 64, which given that her father lived well into his 80s, made her pretty young. The Charlottesville and Richmond newspapers carried this short obituary, and I can really read you the whole thing because it is really, really short. Um, this is a time when, when women's obituaries are actually starting to become a little bit common, um, but this is it's really short. Died suddenly at the residence of, residence of Thomas Jefferson Randolph, Mrs. Martha Randolph, the widow of the late Thomas Mann Randolph and the daughter of Thomas Jefferson. The character of this distinguished lady must be drawn by an abler hand than ours. You know, I think the writer was just really lazy. You know, it's like, I don't want to write this. Let's just. All right. You probably can't see that, but I actually, it's a coffee mug that they sell down in the gift store, so support the Virginia Historical Society. Um, I actually own one of these, and I actually bought it here, and I had a slide of it, because this is what I was going to end with. And you're putting your glasses on. What does this say? What does it say? Well, what it says is, well-behaved women seldom make history. Okay, now this is really weird. Are you applauding that well-behaved women? <laughs> um, it is all, not all that fun to be well-behaved, admittedly. But um, all right, well, this is my current coffee mug, um, my current favorite coffee mug. And the slide, it's sitting next to, well, a New York Mets mug, but we won't even go there. I don't use that anymore. Um, uh, it, the, the slogan was coined by um, the historian Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. She's at Harvard. If you've heard of her, you've probably heard of her as the author of A Midwife's Tale, uh, which is an award-winning book. It was also made into a film for, for PBS. Um, this phrase actually comes from a much earlier essay that she published 
um, you know, back in the 70s. And she just said in the middle of a paragraph, well, we have women somewhat seldom make history. And, and for some reason, someone found the phrase, it caught on, it became bumper stickers, it became t-shirts, it became coffee mugs. 11.95, I believe, by the way. Um, all right, so, by, so what is the point of this? Well, I mean, by any definition, Martha Jefferson Randolph was a well-behaved woman. But significantly, her most notable characteristics seem to have been intelligence and modesty, two qualities that kind of seem at odds with each other. I mean, think about it. How did one reveal superior intelligence if one of the main points of modesty was to downplay one's strengths, and especially to preserve at least the fiction that men were more intelligent and more worldly than women, within women. I mean, I often think of her, writes and speaks four languages, been in France, you know, stuck in a room with stupid men and having to, and having to pretend that they're smarter than she is. I mean, how do you do that? Yeah, okay, obviously by now you know I'm not a well-behaved woman, okay. Um, one of Martha's nieces um, actually said that she had a perfect temper, um, and in fact that's what the original title of my book was, The Press Made Me Change It. Um, but I think, you know, Martha had what we today would call exceptional people skills. Um, and those people skills enabled her intelligence and competence to shine through without intimidating or offending anyone, without making her seem unwomanly. Um, savvy women like Martha could sometimes use their own good behavior to good effect. Admiration for her personal qualities could soothe her father's political enemies or secure political patronage for her jobless sons. Okay, but did this well-behaved woman make history? Um, I think that Ulrich intended this slogan um, kind of ironically. Um, for one thing, it begs the question, what, after all, counts as history? If we mean history with a capital H, in other words, presidents and generals and politics and war, um, then I think the moral of Martha Randolph's story is that women were there making history, even if they were sometimes very hard to find. Um, every time she made her father look good in Washington or at Monticello, Martha Jefferson Randolph was acting politically. She was shaping his legacy, and therefore she was making capital H history. Every time she associated with Andrew Jackson, she helped forge that political culture, that link between Old Hickory and the Sage of Monticello, which is still a kind of staple of the way we teach political history today. At the same time, Martha's story offers us a window onto the lives of women in the early American Republic. Um, and that small age history, I think, is also worth knowing. For the most part, conventional, she was neither passive nor selfless. Her perfect temper, which her admirers praised so mightily, masked the challenges, the dilemmas, and the disappointments of a privileged but still, I think, surprisingly representative life. Thank you. I think I'm allowed to answer questions, which is awesome.
So how does this work? Do I? Okay. What, what, if anything, did Martha Jefferson Randolph write about what she thought about when her sister-in-law, Nancy, married Gouverneur Morris and escaped the Virginia plantations? Oh, that's great. I mean, you got to love this family, right? Um, Governor Morris, a man with a wooden leg who lost his leg running away from an irate husband whose wife he was having an affair with. What a guy, right? Um, well, um, she never wrote anything directly about it, but that was another thing that I really just admired about her. Um, she was the person in the family who corresponded regularly with Nancy Randolph after she moved to New York and became Nancy Morris. And um, I really got the impression that in Martha's mind, this was someone who had done her penance and had found redemption. And so, and, and particularly after Nancy had a child and was, you know, so devoted to that child. Um, so she never wrote anything explicitly like, gee, I'm really glad that Nancy's living happily ever after. Or, but I mean, I think her actions, um, you know, the other thing is that, that Nancy, you know, always wanted to go back to Virginia and to be accepted. Um, some people in the family were not really on board with that. Um, Martha encouraged her to come to Monticello, as did Jefferson, to his credit. And this whole thing, Jefferson and women, is really interesting. Um, despite all of the issues that he had with women, and I believe that he did have some, um, he was very sympathetic to Nancy Randolph as well. And I mean, I think for Jefferson, it was the idea that that, okay, Nancy did something wrong, but these men should have been in control and they should have been protecting her. For Martha, I think the issue was Nancy did something wrong and oh my God, this is so embarrassing and oh, I really wish she hadn't, but you know what? She's gone beyond that and she's made up for it. So that was another thing that just really impressed me about her, that, that, that despite you know, the sort of stereotypes we have about you know, women who make that one really big, usually sexual mistake being, you know, scarred for life and they're written out of the family. That really didn't happen here, um, and it certainly didn't happen with her. It's a great question, though. Okay. I'm Ooh. curious if, oh, here. Oh, okay. If any time there was ever written down a description of the relationship between Martha and Sally Hemings. Uh, that's a really good question, um, and the short answer is no, or at least not that we know of. Um, you know, I mean, the only time that um, Martha ever, well, and actually she didn't write, it was an account of a conversation that she had on her deathbed. I think it was like her first deathbed. They thought she was gonna die, but she didn't. Um, she called her sons in and, and, and told them, um, you know, look, whatever anybody tells you, Sally's children were not your grandfather's children. But, th but there's no, now, I mean, this doesn't mean that she didn't talk about it. She probably did, right? But we don't know what she said. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, one of the reasons why people thrash out this thing constantly is where's the documents? Where's the documents? Fact of the matter is lots of stuff happens that's not in documents. So she probably did talk about it, but, but if she wrote anything, it hasn't survived. Um, and there are people who have studied this way more carefully than I have. Yes, you told us that uh, for about eight years, uh, she managed the properties of the two over here, the properties of, I'm over here. <laughs> the, the properties of, the, of uh, both Thomas Mann and her husband and uh, Jefferson. And as a woman of intelligence, does, do the papers show anything about that? 
management of the of the plantations? Were the seasons good, bad, or did she say anything about it in her seasons? No. In other words, to bring the properties uh, to a better economic level. Well, I mean, mostly what you would have done as a plantation manager, certainly an interim plantation manager at that point, um, would have been to oversee the overseers and the foreman and the miller and, and, and people like that. And so most of what she did was kind of oversight and also communicating to her father and to her husband that, oh, you know, this is what is happening with the crop. Um, oh, you know, one of our slaves ran away, but we're trying to get him back, things like that. So I don't think, I mean, my sense is that she never really took any initiative to change things on the plantation, partly because that wasn't her role, and partly because, I mean, these men were away from home um, but they also weren't away from home permanently. I mean, they, you know, they would, they would come back. So her job was, it was really more managerial, managing something that was already in place rather than making changes. Because, um, you know, I mean, even Jefferson spent at least half of the year at Monticello, and, and Thomas Mann Randolph would have spent much more. But um, so, and it, well, and the other thing is that, and I'm trying to think about this, the, the years that both... Randolph and Jefferson would have been away, which would have been kind of the middle years of Jefferson's presidency. Um, they weren't particularly troublesome years. Um, the main problems for them financially at that point would have been things that as a plantation manager would have been beyond her control. Number one, the repeated requests for money from the loser Randolph relatives, which you know went to Thomas Mann Randolph, um, and and that number two, um, the expenses that they were incurring by virtue of Jefferson being in Washington. Yeah. Okay. Yes, <clears throat> I am a board member of the Thomas Jefferson Heritage Society of Charlottesville, and the gentleman to my right just asked the question I was going to ask. In your book, do you recall the deathbed conversation of Martha regarding her father's relationship with Sally Hemmings, which you've answered? I have a following question. Wasn't Thomas Mann Randolph a descendant of Pocahontas? Oh, um, <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. Um, I, God, you probably know the answer to this more than he, I do. I he mean, he, he Rand, was. Yes, he, he yeah. <laughs> so I don't understand. Why are you asking me a question you know the answer to? <laughs> Um, I, 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 what I was going to say is I've actually written a lot more about the, the, the not the bizarre branch, but the John Randolph of Roanoke, Richard, and those people were direct descendants of Pocahontas. Thomas Mann Randolph is descended from Pocahontas, but I believe less directly. Is that right? No. Okay. All right. You want to talk about Pocahontas? <laughs> well, Thank you. Um, thank you for that question answer because this means that Pocahontas is one of my ancestors. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Which I didn't know because I'm a descendant of Thomas Jefferson and not Sally Hemings, but Thomas Jefferson's daughter, Martha, okay. and her husband. And there, I have it all written down here. Give, please, please be patient with me. And Thomas Jefferson Randolph 
Jane Nicholas on to Martha Jefferson Randolph, John Charles Randolph, who had a son named Moncure Robinson Taylor, who had a relationship with my great-grandmother, Rachel Robinson Taylor. They produced my grandmother, Ava Robinson Taylor, who married Arthur Jeff Jessup, who then produced Cedric Jessup, who was my father. Is that pretty complicated? <laughs> you, you need a PowerPoint. You I need do. A, you need <laughs> it took me 40 years to get to this. And um, it was great fun doing the research, and I've been in touch with the Thomas Jefferson Foundation. I have pictures. I have a Bible from 1821 with the initials DT on it. T. Ison was for Taylor. So my question to you after all that is, have you read anything in your research that uh, had any information at all about the Randolphs and that sounds as if they were really exciting people? <laughs> and uh, the relationships with uh, black people. Oh, um, well, I mean, the most interesting story, have you read Melvin Ely's book, Israel on the Appomattox? No. Oh, amazing story. Um, John Randolph of Roanoke's brother, Richard, the one who was at the heart of the scandal that yeah. I mentioned, um, he died young, um, but when he died in the 1790s, he left a remarkable will in which he not only freed his slaves, but included, as the rationale for freeing his slaves, this amazing diatribe about how slavery was wrong and how white people were brutal to black. I mean, all of this, you know, I mean, people like Jefferson said slavery was bad, but they mostly meant that it was bad for white people. Richard Randolph was saying it was bad for black people. And so there's this wonderful, I mean, he has this will whereby he's like, I'm freeing my slaves, I'm giving them land in Prince Edward County, and it, and it takes, I mean, it takes over a decade for this actually to happen because his estate is so deeply in debt. Um, but that is a wonderful account of a relationship, a, a not sexual relationship, but of a personal relationship and a moral relationship um, between a slave owner and his slaves. And I mean, I theorize on the, in the Bazaar book um, that one of the reasons why white people in particular were so adamant that Richard Randolph must have done something bad with his sister-in-law is because he was already suspect for being so out there on anti-slavery and that they saw those connections. So right off the top of my head, I mean, that book won all sorts of awards. It is fabulous. And, and actually, Richard Randolph's Free Slaves became um, this community, this free African-American community in Prince Edward County um, beginning in like 1807, which is like, right, more than a half a century before emancipation. And the interesting thing is that a lot of white people would point at that community and say, look, that proves they can't be free, you know, and use it for propaganda because, oh, it's such a mess and they're so poor and blah, blah, blah. And one of the things that Melvin Ely does in his book is he actually researches the place and these people and he said, you know, they, they kind of did okay. They, they did okay living in this community. So that's the first thing that I would say. Um, the Randolphs are, you know, a huge family. Um, they had huge numbers of slaves because they were wealthy, I mean, at least until they went broke. Um, I mean, I, I, would, I would start there. Um, I would look at the relevant parts of my book um, on Bazaar. I mean, I would also, there's a new biography of John Randolph of Roanoke that, yes. um, that I mean, I think there, I think that the author mostly doesn't talk about the really interesting stuff 
Like, in other words, why did he free his slaves? But he's somebody else who freed his slaves. And it's a really fascinating case study of someone who politically was about as pro-slavery as you could get, but yet personally, he decided that he was going to free his slaves when he, did, when he died. So, I mean, I would start with that. And if you want to email me, I'll try to think of other things. But off the top of my head, that's not bad for a totally unexpected question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a totally unexpected person, actually, considering my background. <laughs> oh, thank, thank you for that. But Israel on the Appomattox, it's an it's a awesome book. Well, I'll get yours, and I'll read that as well. And, and, and Pocahontas, wow, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson was a prolific writer. Was his daughter also? And if she was, who has those letters today? Oh, that is a fabulous question. Um, yes, she was a prolific writer. Not as prolific as he was, because of course she couldn't spend every day in the library sitting around with books and pens and papers. She had a household to run, right? Um, but I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that I think. The reason why um, you, know, you can write a 300-page biography of this woman is because of who she exchanged letters with. In other words, we have most of her letters because they're in the Thomas Jefferson papers. From later years, they're in the Nicholas Trist papers. He becomes a very important, you know, has a great you know, diplomatic career. There are papers in the Library of Congress, Trist papers. There are Trist papers down in Chapel Hill, in the Southern Historical Collection. Um, so they would be um, some of the most important collections. Um, you know, the, another collection would be at the Massachusetts Historical Society, which are also Jefferson papers that went down through the family and the Coolidge family. So yeah, I mean, I think she was a prolific writer. To my mind, um, you know, a lot of the probably really, really interesting letters for someone who's interested in the kind of things I'm interested in haven't survived because, you know, their letter that she might have written to, you know, her, you know, flaky sister-in-law or whatever, and who is she? She's not important. We're not going to save it. Um, but I, I think that um, she wasn't as prolific as he was, but for a woman of the time, she, you know, she had a large family. She kept in touch with her family, and we're just fortunate that at least some of these people were important enough to have had their letters collected. And, and, you know, I mean, that's my whole argument about using somebody who, in a lot of ways, is extraordinary, but as a window onto the lives of people, um, you know, who in many ways, um, you know, for elite white women, um, who are clearly not the same as poor white women, but still, people that we really don't know a lot about um, for this period, particularly um, in southern places like Virginia, where literacy rates were lower, where documents have not survived, and where people just didn't write as much and didn't save as much. Thank you. Thank you very much.